The Course of the World's History, Subsection 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Introduction to The Philosophy of History by Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. The Course of the World's History, Subsection 1. The mutations which history presents have been long characterized in the general as an advance to something better, more perfect. The changes that take place in nature, how infinitely manifold soever they may be, exhibit only a perpetually self-repeating cycle. In nature, there happens nothing new under the sun, and the multiform play of its phenomena so far induces a feeling of ennui. Only in those changes which take place in the region of spirit does anything new arise. This peculiarity in the world of mind has indicated in the case of man an altogether different destiny from that of merely natural objects in which we find always one and the same stable character to which all change reverts, namely, a real capacity for change, and that, for the better, an impulse of perfectibility. This principle, which reduces change itself under a law, has met with an unfavorable reception from religions, such as the Catholic, and from states claiming as their just right a stereotyped, or at least a stable position. If the mutability of worldly things in general, political constitutions, for instance, is conceded, either religion, as the religion of truth, is absolutely accepted, or the difficulty escaped by ascribing changes, revolutions, and abrogations of immaculate theories and institutions to accidents or imprudence, but principally to the levity and evil passions of man. The principle of perfectibility, indeed, is almost as indefinite a term as mutability in general. It is without scope or goal, and has no standard by which to estimate the changes in question, the improved, more perfect state of things towards which it professedly tends is altogether undetermined. The principle of development involves also the existence of a latent germ of being, a capacity or potentiality striving to realize itself. This formal conception finds actual existence in spirit, which has the history of the world for its theatre, its possession, and the sphere of its realization. It is not of such a nature as to be tossed to and fro amid the superficial play of accidents, but is rather the absolute arbiter of things, entirely unmoved by contingencies which, indeed, it applies and manages for its own purposes. Development, however, is also a property of organized natural objects. Their existence presents itself not as an exclusively dependent one, subjected to external changes, but as one which expands itself 
in virtue of an internal unchangeable principle, a simple essence, whose existence, that is, as a germ, is primarily simple, but which subsequently develops a variety of parts that become involved with other objects and consequently live through a continuous process of changes. A process, nevertheless, that results in the very contrary of change, and is even transformed into a vis conservatrix of the organic principle and the form embodying it. Thus the organized individuum produces itself. It expands itself actually to what it was always potentially. So spirit is only that which it attains by its own efforts. It makes itself actually what it always was potentially. That development of natural organisms takes place in a direct, unopposed, unhindered manner. Between the idea and its realization, the essential constitution of the original germ and the conformity to it of the existence derived from it, no disturbing influence can intrude. But in relation to spirit, it is quite otherwise. The realization of its idea is mediated by consciousness and will. These very faculties are, in the first instance, sunk in their primary, merely natural life. The first object and goal of their striving is the realization of their merely natural destiny, but which, since it is spirit that animates it, is possessed of vast attractions and displays great power and moral richness. Thus, spirit is at war with itself. It has to overcome itself as its most formidable obstacle. That development which in the sphere of nature is a peaceful growth is in that of spirit a severe, mighty conflict with itself. What spirit really strives for is the realization of its ideal being, but in doing so it hides that goal from its own vision, and is proud and well satisfied in this alienation from it. Its expansion, therefore, does not present the harmless tranquility of mere growth, as does that of organic life, but a stern reluctant working against itself. It exhibits, moreover, not the mere formal conception of development, but the attainment of a definite result. The goal of attainment we determined at the outset, it is spirit in its completeness, in its essential nature, that is, freedom. This is the fundamental object, and therefore also the leading principle of the development, that whereby it receives meaning and importance. As in the Roman history, Rome is the object, consequently that which directs our consideration of the facts related. As, conversely, the phenomena of the process have resulted from this principle alone, and only as referred to it possess a sense and value. There are many considerable periods in history in which this development seems to have been intermitted, in which, we might rather say, the whole enormous gain of previous culture appears to have been entirely lost. After which, unhappily, a new commencement has been necessary, made in the hope of recovering, 
by the assistance of some remains saved from the wreck of a former civilization, and by dint of a renewed incalculable expenditure of strength and time, one of the regions which had been an ancient possession of that civilization. We behold also continued processes of growth, structures and systems of culture in particular spheres, rich in kind and well-developed in every direction. The merely formal and indeterminate view of development in general can neither assign to one form of expansion superiority over the other, nor render comprehensible the object of that decay of older periods of growth, but must regard such occurrences, or to speak more particularly, the retrocessions they exhibit, as external contingencies, and can only judge of particular modes of development from indeterminate points of view, which, since the development as such, is all in all, are relative, and not absolute goals of attainment. Universal history exhibits the gradation in the development of that principle whose substantial purport is the consciousness of freedom. The analysis of the successive grades in their abstract form belongs to logic, in their concrete aspect to the philosophy of spirit. Here it is sufficient to state that the first step in the process presents that immersion of spirit in nature which has been already referred to. The second shows it as advancing to the consciousness of its freedom. But this initial separation from nature is imperfect and partial, since it is derived immediately from the merely natural state, is consequently related to it, and is still encumbered with it as an essentially connected element. The third step is the elevation of the soul from this still limited and special form of freedom to its pure universal form, that state in which the spiritual essence attains the consciousness and feeling of itself. These grades are the ground principles of the general process, but how each of them, on the other hand, involves within itself a process of formation, constituting the links in a dialectic of transition, to particularize this must be reserved for the sequel. Here, we have only to indicate that spirit begins with a germ of infinite possibility, but only possibility, containing its substantial existence in an undeveloped form as the object and goal which it reaches only in its resultant full reality. In actual existence, progress appears as an advancing from the imperfect to the more perfect, but the former must not be understood abstractly as only the imperfect, but as something which involves the very opposite of itself, the so-called perfect, as a germ or impulse. So, reflectively at least, possibility points to something destined to become actual, the Aristotelian dunamis is also potentia, power, and might. Thus the imperfect, as involving its opposite, is a contradiction, which certainly exists, but which is continually annulled and solved. The instinctive movement, the inherent impulse in the life of the soul, to break through the rind of mere nature, sensuousness, 
and that which is alien to it, and to attain to the light of consciousness, that is, to itself. We have already made the remark how the commencement of the history of spirit must be conceived so as to be in harmony with its idea, in its bearing on the representations that have been made of a primitive, natural condition, in which freedom and justice are supposed to exist, or to have existed. This was, however, nothing more than an assumption of historical existence conceived in the twilight of theorizing reflection. A pretension of quite another order, not a mere inference of reasoning, but making the claim of historical fact, and that supernaturally confirmed, is put forth in connection with a different view that is now widely promulgated by a certain class of speculatists. This view takes up the idea of the primitive paradisiacal condition of man, which had been previously expanded by the theologians after their fashion, involving, for example, the supposition that God spoke with Adam in Hebrew, but remodeled to suit other requirements. The high authority appealed to in the first instance is the biblical narrative, but this depicts the primitive condition partly only in the few well-known traits, but partly either as in man generically, human nature at large, or, so far as Adam is to be taken as an individual and consequently one person, as existing and completed in this one, or only in one human pair. The biblical account by no means justifies us in imagining a people, and an historical condition of such people, existing in that primitive form. Still less does it warrant us in attributing to them the possession of a perfectly developed knowledge of God and nature. Nature, so the fiction runs, like a clear mirror of God's creation, had originally lain revealed and transparent to the unclouded eye of man. Footnote. Confer Friedrich von Schlegel's Philosophy of History. End footnote. Divine truth is imagined to have been equally manifest. It is even hinted, though left in some degree of obscurity, that in this primary condition men were in possession of an indefinitely extended and already expanded body of religious truths immediately revealed by God. This theory affirms that all religions had their historical commencement in this primitive knowledge, and that they polluted and obscured the original truth by the monstrous creations of error and depravity. Though in all the mythologies invented by error, traces of that origin and of those primitive true dogmas are supposed to be present and cognizable. An important interest, therefore, accrues to the investigation of the history of ancient peoples, that, namely, of the endeavor to trace their annals up to the point where such fragments of the primary revelation are to be met with in greater purity than lower down. We owe to the interest which has occasioned these investigations very much that is valuable, but this investigation bears direct testimony against itself, for it would seem to be awaiting the issue of an historical demonstration of that which is presupposed by it, 
as historically established. That advanced condition of the knowledge of God and of other scientific, for example, astronomical knowledge, such as has been falsely attributed to the Hindus, and the assertion that such a condition occurred at the very beginning of history, or that the religions of various nations were traditionally derived from it, and have developed themselves in degeneracy and deprivation, as is represented in the rudely conceived so-called emanation system, all these are suppositions which neither have, nor, if we may contrast with their arbitrary subjective origin, the true conception of history, can attain historical confirmation. The only consistent and worthy method which philosophical investigation can adopt is to take up history, where rationality begins to manifest itself in the actual conduct of the world's affairs, not where it is merely an undeveloped potentiality, where a condition of things is present in which it realizes itself in consciousness, will, and action. The inorganic existence of spirit, that of abstract freedom, unconscious torpidity in respect to good and evil, and consequently to laws, or, if we please to term it so, blessed ignorance, is itself not a subject of history. Natural, and at the same time religious morality, is the piety of the family. In this social relation, morality consists in the members behaving towards each other, not as individuals possessing an independent will, not as persons. The family, therefore, is excluded from that process of development in which history takes its rise. But when this self-involved spiritual unity steps beyond this circle of feeling and natural love, and first attains the consciousness of personality, we have that dark, dull center of indifference in which neither nature nor spirit is open and transparent, and for which nature and spirit can become open and transparent only by means of a further process. A very lengthened culture of that will at length become self-conscious. Consciousness alone is clearness, and is that alone for which God or any other existence can be revealed. In its true form, in absolute universality, nothing can be manifested except to consciousness made percipient of it. Freedom is nothing but the recognition and adoption of such universal substantial objects as right and law and the production of a reality that is accordant with them, the state. Nations may have passed a long life before arriving at this, their destination, and during this period they may have attained considerable culture in some directions. This anti-historical period, consistently with what has been said, lies out of our plan, whether a real history followed it, or the people in question never attained a political constitution. It is a great discovery in history, as of a new world, 
which has been made within rather more than the last twenty years, respecting the Sanskrit and the connection of the European languages with it. In particular, the connection of the German and Indian peoples has been demonstrated, with as much certainty as such subjects allow of. Even at the present time we know of peoples which scarcely form a society, much less a state, but that have been long known as existing, while with regard to others, which in their advanced condition excite our especial interest, tradition reaches beyond the record of the founding of the state, and they experienced many changes prior to that epoch. In the connection just referred to between the languages of nations so widely separated, we have a result before us which proves the diffusion of those nations from Asia as a center, and the so dissimilar development of what had been originally related as an incontestable fact, not as an inference deduced by that favorite method of combining and reasoning from circumstances grave and trivial, which has already enriched and will continue to enrich history, with so many fictions given out as facts. But that apparently so extensive range of events lies beyond the pale of history, in fact, preceded it. In our language, the term history, translator's note, German Geschichte from Geschehen to happen, and translator's note, unites the objective with the subjective side, and denotes quite as much the historia rerum gestarum as the race gestae themselves. On the other hand, it comprehends not less what has happened than the narration of what has happened. This union of the two meanings we must regard as a higher order than mere outward accident. We must suppose historical narrations to have appeared contemporaneously with historical deeds and events. It is an internal vital principle common to both that produces them synchronously. Family memorials, patriarchal conditions, have an interest confined to the family and the clan. The uniform course of events which such a condition implies is no subject of serious remembrance, though distinct transactions or turns of fortune may arouse nemosyne to form conceptions of them, in the same way as love and the religious emotions provoke imagination to give shape to a previously formless impulse. But it is the state which first presents subject matter that is not only adapted to the prose of history, but involves the production of such history in the very progress of its own being. Instead of merely subjective mandates on the part of government, sufficing for the needs of the moment, a community that is acquiring a stable existence and exalting itself into a state requires formal commands and laws, comprehensive and universally binding prescriptions, and thus produces a record as well as an interest concerned with intelligent, definite, and in their results, lasting transactions and occurrences, on which mnemosyne, for the behoof of the perennial object of the formation and constitution of the state, 
is impelled to confer perpetuity. Profound sentiments generally, such as that of love, as also religious intuition and its conceptions, are in themselves complete, constantly present and satisfying, but that outward existence of a political constitution which is enshrined in its rational laws and customs is an imperfect present, and cannot be thoroughly understood without a knowledge of the past. The periods, whether we suppose them to be centuries or millennia, that were passed by nations before history was written among them, and which may have been filled with revolutions, nomadic wanderings, and the strangest mutations, are on that very account destitute of objective history, because they present no subjective history, no annals. We need not suppose that the records of such periods have accidentally perished. Rather, because they were not possible, do we find them wanting. Only in a state cognizant of laws can distinct transactions take place accompanied by such a clear consciousness of them as supplies the ability and suggests the necessity of an enduring record. It strikes everyone, in beginning to form an acquaintance with the treasures of Indian literature, that a land so rich in intellectual products and those of the profoundest order of thought has no history and, in this respect, contrasts most strongly with China, an empire possessing one so remarkable, one going back to the most ancient times. India has not only ancient books relating to religion and splendid poetical productions, but also ancient codes, the existence of which latter kind of literature has been mentioned as a condition necessary to the origination of history. And yet, history itself is not found. But in that country, the impulse of organization in beginning to develop social distinctions was immediately petrified in the merely natural classification according to castes, so that, although the laws concern themselves with civil rights, they make even these dependent on natural distinctions and are especially occupied with determining the relations, wrongs rather than rights, of those classes towards each other, that is, the privileges of the higher over the lower. Consequently, the element of morality is banished from the pomp of Indian life and from its political institutions. Where that iron bondage of distinctions derived from nature prevails, the connection of society is nothing but wild arbitrariness, transient activity, or rather the play of violent emotion without any goal of advancement or development. Therefore no intelligent reminiscence, no object for mnemosyne presents itself, and imagination, confused though profound, expatiates in a region which, to be capable of history, must have had an aim within the domain of reality and, at the same time, of substantial freedom. Since such are the conditions indispensable to a history, 
it has happened that the growth of families to clans, of clans to peoples, and their local diffusion consequent upon this numerical increase, a series of facts which itself suggests so many instances of social complication, war, revolution, and ruin, a process which is so rich in interest and so comprehensive in extent, has occurred without giving rise to history. Moreover, that the extension and organic growth of the empire of articulate sounds has itself remained voiceless and dumb, a stealthy, unnoticed advance. It is a fact revealed by philological monuments that languages, during a rude condition of the nations that have spoken them, have been very highly developed, that the human understanding occupied this theoretical region with great ingenuity and completeness. For grammar, in its extended and consistent form, is the work of thought which makes its categories distinctly visible therein. It is, moreover, a fact that with advancing social and political civilization, this systematic completeness of intelligence suffers attrition, and language thereupon becomes poorer and ruder. A singular phenomenon, that the progress towards a more highly intellectual condition while expanding and cultivating rationality, should disregard that intelligent amplitude and expressiveness, should find it an obstruction, and contrive to do without it. Speech is the act of theoretic intelligence in a special sense. It is its external manifestation. Exercises of memory and imagination, without language, are direct, non-speculative manifestations. But this act of theoretic intelligence itself, as also its subsequent development, and the more concrete class of facts connected with it, namely, the spreading of peoples over the earth, their separation from each other, their comminglings and wanderings, remain involved in the obscurity of a voiceless past. They are not acts of will becoming self-conscious, of freedom mirroring itself in a phenomenal form and creating for itself a proper reality, not partaking of this element of substantial, veritable existence. These nations, notwithstanding the development of language among them, have never advanced to the possession of a history. The rapid growth of language and the progress and dispersion of nations assume importance and interest for concrete reason only when they have come in contact with states or begin to form political constitutions themselves. After these remarks, relating to the form of the commencement of the world's history, and to that ante-historical period which must be excluded from it, we have to state the direction of its course, though here only formally. The further definition of the subject in the concrete comes under the head of arrangement. End 
The Course of the World's History, Subsection 1. This recording is in the public domain.